Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another weekly live stream with yours truly, Dr. Sarah Webb of Colorism Healing. Today's topic, if you did not see the announcements for the week, is a reflection on the past decade of work that I've been doing around colorism healing. So this is part origin story, sort of a transparent moment about how I got here, what the work is that I've been doing all of this time. It's partly inspired by people who have recently told me that they see my work as a model for how they want to, the kind of work that they want to do. And so I think it's good to be transparent about what the work has actually been. I don't, I want to demystify for people the whole content creator, um, public advocacy type of work. But also, you know, for most of the people who follow me, uh, especially on Instagram and TikTok and places like that, they've only known me since 2020. Are later. Some people just started following me in 2021. And so there's a huge chunk of my story, of my backstory that people might not have, context that people might not have. And I think it's really important because that context explains not just why I do the work, but also how I choose to do the work, the, the ways that I show up in the world, who I talk to, who I don't talk to. Um, and so, yeah, I want to kind of have a reflective moment with my community, with the folks that make this work relevant and that make it important in the first place, right? And so before I jump into that, I want to see who's watching live with me. So say hello. Kindly Social is already saying, hey, hey there. Um, And I see other folks joining as well. So if you are tuning in, let me know where you're watching from. Let me know what the weather is like where you are. I really am enjoying October weather in Texas. It's uh, pretty ideal for fall because it's like warm, but also cool and great for like sweaters and boots, but like they call it transitional wardrobes. (laughs) Um, Also a few announcements. The book, The Writing Contest, is still available online. I know I don't talk about it as much as I should um, because I'm not like a marketer or salesperson. But that's definitely a big part. The writing contest and the books that we publish from the writing contest are definitely a big part of the mission, a big part of the global work that we do. So definitely check that out. And what else was I going to announce? See, last week I said I was going to write down my announcements so I didn't forget them, but I didn't do that. So we'll say that that's the best announcement for now. Um, All right. So I see some folks saying hello. I'm going to pull up my notes for this week. Right there. Hey, Armando Rivera, 1989, a.k. Jorge. Hello, Ray, here in Hotlanta, Marcelo Dock. That sounds cool. So you're getting to look at the water and see the lake or the ocean. Uh, not an ocean in Atlanta, but the lake, perhaps. Um, greetings from London, UK. This is Sarah Castro, 1332. Hey, Sarah Castro from London, UK. Welcome. Um, Also, if this is your first time watching, let me know. Like, so some names I recognize, others I don't. Definitely have some golden oldies in the room. 
Hey, from Utah, this is P. Fonua, too. Hey, Lucid Lowe's. Brianna Holtz, welcome from Brooklyn <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Yay. I like y'all so much. So I, hey, Lucy Lowe's. And so I titled the blog post because I always write a blog post. Not always, but I started recently writing blog posts leading up to the live stream to prepare. And so again, if you're watching or listening, I do these every week at two o'clock central time on Tuesdays and I save them to IGTV. I repost them to YouTube. I post them on a blog post at colorismhealing.com and I have I share the audio on a podcast that you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Um, yeah, so I think those are the, all the places to listen to the recording. Um, and so for today, I kind of want to go through a brief timeline of colorism healing. And in, in, in my Instagram post, I said, who, what, why, and how, right? So who am I? Where am I coming from? Why do I do this? How did I get there, get here? And I was saying how it's not as juicy as like some of my other weekly live streams, right? So I was like, the people who watch this are like, you know, core community folks. <laughs> but I think an important part of my story and an important part about how I do the work, why I show up the way I do, is that I was born into a multicolored family, like so many of us, right? And my mom in particular was light-skinned. My sister is light-skinned. My dad and my brother were darker-skinned. And so growing up, um, my parents divorced pretty early. And so it was my mom and me and my siblings who grew up. And we were all really, really close-knit and still are to this day. I'm actually at my sister's house now. <laughs> so like we're super, super close. Um, and... Having, though, a light-skinned mom and a light-skinned sister made me aware of colorism really early, right? Whereas if I maybe grew up in a household where the women looked more like me, I might have been a little bit shielded from it in my early years. Some people say they don't experience it till they go to school or even till they go to college. But for me, because of that difference in my immediate family, but also my extended family, runs the gamut of skin tones. We have people who are darker than me and people who are extremely light-skinned and have different hair textures and that sort of thing. But in particular, having a sibling of the same gender, there were a lot of comparisons from people outside of our home. And so early on, I started recognizing, I could recognize as young as five or six, that people were responding to my sister differently than me. And sometimes their comments were explicit, could have been explicitly about her skin tone versus mine, right? And I tell this story all the time. If you see my TED Talk, some of this might be a review. But um, we were visiting family and some extended aunts were saying, oh, you know, you're, you're going to have to watch out for, you know, your other daughter. She's really pretty. She's going to be a heartbreaker or whatever. And my mom heard me whispering, you know, that's because she's light skin. Um, and so I don't remember that. I was too young to actually remember that incident. But when I first started blogging about colorism, that story came out with my mom told that to me. And so fast forward Obviously, I had experienced colorism throughout my life, throughout my childhood. And we know, for those of us who do research on colorism and who talk about colorism frequently, we know that it starts when kids are in the womb, right? When children are, when parents, our mothers are being asked, you know, I wonder what kind of hair your child is going to have, or I wonder if she's going to have your skin tone or her dad's skin tone, right? And so, yeah, definitely all the, the stories and ways that colorism shows up and manifests 
I experienced that. And as you know, as some of you know, I should say, I didn't talk about it until I was about 25 years old. I was one of those people, just like many of you were, who just kind of was observing this and seeing this and being like, this is not, this doesn't feel good, but nobody else is talking about it, so maybe I shouldn't bring it up either, right? And feeling like, oh, if I say something, people are going to get mad, or if I say something, people are going to judge me, or tell me to shut up or dismiss me. And so I wanted to avoid that sort of negative attention by speaking up about it. And so fast forward to 2011, I'm about 25 years old. I, I didn't do the math, so maybe I'm 25 or 24 or something like that. <laughs> but I had just graduated with my MFA and I was teaching high school English, ninth grade English in my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I had started a blog just to maintain my own writing practice and as an outlet for my own creativity, right? So I was blogging about random stuff, blogging about my quarter life crisis and things like that. And then the Bill Duke documentary for Dark Girls came out. And I was like, just like so many people experienced like, somebody's talking about colorism. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's a movie about this. And I know now, like now that since I've been doing the research, I know now that there were other films about colorism that came out in the 90s and before that. But for me, that was my first time seeing it. Um, and so that trailer, watching that trailer made me think, wow, I should write about this. Like this should be a topic for a blog post that I should write about. And it was scary as I don't know what, right? Like my palms were sweating. It took me like 30 minutes just to press publish. And I was like texting my mom for moral support. Like, I don't know if I wanna say this. I don't know if I wanna put this out there because people are gonna judge me and be mad. So this is like, this is Dr. Webb before, before I was Dr. Webb, okay? This is before I was still just Sarah Webb, hadn't gone to my doctorate program or whatever. And had never spoken about colorism publicly before until 2011. But I published it. And as y'all know, <laughs> I did get the pushback. The things I feared would happen actually happened, right? And so I had um, a light-skinned person I went to um, grad school with, you know, basically cussing me out on Facebook, saying, how dare you talk about this? you know, when there are starving children and there are wars going on. And I had a dark-skinned person saying, um, you're just looking for something to be mad about because I never experienced colorism, right? And so, but that also made me realize like, yo, if people are having this kind of reaction, we as black folks need to actually talk about this, right? Like this is something we actually need to talk about. Um, and so I, Oh, so I was going to also say too, many people might not know this, but I wasn't, when I first started that blog in 2011, I wasn't using the word colorism yet. Okay. So little fun facts, little fun trivia for uh, folks who've been around with me for a little while. I wasn't using colorism yet. I was using words like skin tone bias or skin color prejudice, right? Because I hadn't heard of colorism yet. And so what happened was someone found my blog. Someone had been doing some searching online. They found my blog. They were like, yo, I really love your blog post. I love how you talk about colorism. And I am starting a radio show, a radio program dedicated to colorism. So this person was um, Dr. Colbreth. 
I believe I'm saying that correctly. Um, and she had started this thing called the Intraracial Colorism Project. And so she introduced me to the word colorism. And she um, had just recently written her dissertation and was telling me about like um, Audrey Alyssa Kerr's The Paper Bag Principle. So not only was that um, encounter, that interaction, even though it was brief, it only lasted for a couple of months, I think that interaction introduced me to the term colorism. It also introduced me to some of the academic research on colorism, because again, I had graduated with my master's in creative writing and I was teaching high school English, right? So I was not even close to being Dr. Webb yet. Um, and also it was my first time doing like a live interview, like live radio, live podcast stuff. And so I, you know, that's definitely, that was definitely a pivotal moment for me. Um, but then, so I got deep into like blogging and I was, you know, guess ghost writing on other blogs and like writing newspaper articles and local magazines. And I found some part of this little history that I'm giving y'all is like giving props to all the people and role models I've had along the way. Um, so in 2013, I discovered Blogging While Brown. Blogging While Brown conference. Has anyone heard of that conference? Founded by Gina McCauley, who had a blog. I don't know the name of it, but it was something about like, um, our daughters or something like that. And it was really about, you know, little black girls, black girls and protecting black girls. And so Gina McCauley, the founder of Blogging While Brown, again, another space that changed my life. It was called Blogging While Brown, but it was primarily black bloggers. And I went to that conference in 2013, like May of 2013, um, came home. And a couple of weeks later, I was like, you know what? I need to create something that's just about colorism. Like that needs to be my focus for a new blog. And so I got to work on a new blog and I was like, I know it's gonna be about colorism, you know, some kind of focus on colorism. 2011, y'all, I was Googling around. If, if you don't know, there was not nearly as much on the internet about colorism as there is today in 2021. Like we're kind of in a renaissance or like a golden age, so relative to the past about colorism and conversations about colorism, even though it's still under discussed. But in 2013, I was like, there's no space online dedicated to colorism. You have all sorts of websites and projects and initiatives dedicated to racism and sexism and body positivity, right? And there was no space that focused exclusively on colorism. You had a, a, a blog post here on some website, you know, and then maybe another random post on some other website that kind of just touched on it, like surface level, right? And so I was like, no, we need to go deep and we need to like have a place where people can go deep into this topic. And so I was like, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make that place, right? Um, Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you want to write that hasn't been written, you have to write it. <laughs> so if there's a space or a resource that you want that hasn't been created yet, then you have to create it. Um, and so, yeah, Colorism Healing was birthed in 2013. And so I took those first blog posts that I wrote in 2011, 2012, and I republished them on colorismhealing.com. And that was the start of that, right? Um, let me pause for a second because I see some folks bought some badges that I have to give gratitude to. Lucid Lowe's, thank you for purchasing a badge. Um, JB1710, thank you for purchasing a badge. And Jandel Crutch, thank you for your purchase of a badge. I appreciate the support. Um, let's see.
So Lucy Losa saying, wow, that is such a young age. Yeah, I've seen people make similar comments around age five and six. And I, I always emphasize that because parents in particular think that their children aren't noticing. People think, oh, they're too young to understand. They don't really get it. And so they, they want to wait until kids get to high school or they want to wait until their kids are teenagers to talk about colorism. But I always use those kinds of examples to say, no, your children are already experiencing colorism for sure. They're definitely already experiencing it. People are already colorist towards babies, much less, you know, young children. And so the sooner you can start to make them aware of one, the beauty of their skin, but also help them separate other people's treatment of them from their own value and self-worth, right? We start that younger and younger, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you, K-Drama Oma, saying courageous. It, it did take a lot of courage. Um, Miguel Lu says this is a war. It is a war. Hey, Miguel, how are you? <laughs> it is a war. It's a spiritual war. It's a political war. It's a cultural war, right? Thank you, Black Love Project, for purchasing a badge. Thank you for that support. Um. So after I started in 2013 with the blogging, I realized that people were finding my blog from, by searching for poems about colorism. And so I was like, again, I searched. There were no easily accessible, easily identifiable um, poetry or even creative writings about colorism. So, so I was like, let's have a contest and generate some poems about colorism that people can read and share. And so birthed, you know, what I was talking about at the beginning, the International Colorism Healing Writing Contest. Although it wasn't international yet, and it only accepted poetry in the very beginning, it was definitely the genesis. And what was exciting to me about that is I reached out to some pretty big names if anyone has heard of Sharon G. Flake, the author of the young adult novel, The Skin I'm In. So as we talk about resources in literature that talk about colorism specifically, The Skin I Am is one of the young adult classics that do so. And so when Sharon, I reached out to Sharon G. Flake, she accepted and actually was a judge in that first contest. And so I was like, wow, that is historic for me. And so I wanna, I wanna email her and see if she remembers <laughs> being a judge for the contest. Um, thank you, RxCYJL, for the badge. Thank you. Um, thank you, Kindly Social, for purchasing a badge. Y'all are so sweet. <laughs> I'm gonna blush. Um, and one thing too about the early days of 2011 to 2013, 2014-ish, so that fir the first couple few years of me writing publicly and posting public publicly about colorism is that I was surprised by who reached out to me. I was so shocked because again, like I, I had never blogged before. Like I was not even, like that world was not even on my radar, okay? And so it's very memorable to me, like those first conversations I had with people. Two of my early readers, the fact that I had readers in like 2012 is just like crazy to me, but two of my early readers who would email me periodically were black men from Brazil. And I was like, there are these people like living way in Brazil whose first language is Portuguese and they're reading my stuff 
and feeling compelled to contact me about it, feeling compelled to say, yo, this is definitely a problem in Brazil. This is definitely an issue with us, you know, disliking our darker skinned brothers and preferring European aesthetics and trying to distance ourselves from our African heritage and that sort of thing. Um, but even when I would look at my analytics, right, and I saw people reading my blogs in Kenya and Nigeria and, you know, the UK, and I was like, yo, this has global reach, right? And so again, I was just writing stuff, y'all, like seriously. <laughs> and part of the reason why I'm having this conversation is because I don't, like, if you just find my work today in 2021, it might look really polished. It might look really, like, put together. But that origin is so critical into, like, who I've developed into as a colorism advocate. Um and like those early conversations, people that hopped on the phone with me, people were sending me emails from different parts of the world, different ethnic groups. Um, Stella MPC um, was one of the first people to reach out to me, and she's still a part of the CH community now. She participated in a writing contest, but she was from South Africa, and she wanted to start a blog on colorism in Africa specifically. And, you know, was, again, wanting to have a conversation with me because there weren't many people doing that work in, in that way, right? Um, and so, you know, later on when I talk about my mission being a global mission, it comes from that origin story, right? When I talk about wh how I got to where I am today and why my work is international and global and cross-cultural and intersectional is because when I knew nothing. Now, mind you, like when I first wrote that blog post in 2011, I had not done research on colorism. Like I started writing about my personal experiences. I started like reading around a little bit, but I had not like researched colorism. And so I was just having conversations and was shocked by the fact that anyone was showing up, much less the fact that it wasn't just people like me who were showing up, right? Um, yeah, and so then in 2014, the contest launched and that's pretty much how I got to where I am today. And periodically, so like 2015, 2014, I also started graduate school. And so after that first contest, I didn't have the time or the money to do the contest again. So I took 2015 off to just focus on my doctoral program. And then 2016, 2017, I used like some GoFundMe money. The first contest was fully self-funded because I had gotten a little cash back from my teacher retirement. <laughs> um, so I used like that extra stuff to fund the contest. And then in 2016, 17, I did some GoFundMe to kind of cover part of the costs. Um, and so again, part of the, the ebb and flow, like going in and out, is both about time, like being in different phases of my life. Um, so starting grad school for one, when I got my job at the University of Illinois in Springfield, I took that next year off from the contest because I was like new occupation, new location. I'm having to deal with snow and ice for the first time ever. And it was just a lot of change. And so I was like, I can't, uh, I don't have the capacity to go through this life transition and manage the contest all by myself, right? But then that also made me realize that I needed to start calling in reinforcements. And so this is, some of you who talk to me one-on-one -on -one know this, but um, all these years that I'm talking about, it wasn't until 20, 
2019 that I actually had an assistant, someone helping me. And they were just helping me with the writing contest, right? And so it was a former student who had taken like an intro to creative writing course with me. Um, And I don't know, maybe it's like a, a personality thing. It could be a cultural thing where it's like, it's hard to ask for help. One, because I was so unorganized and I feel like I don't know what to tell people to help me with <laughs> but also like not wanting to bother people right and feeling like oh I if it's gonna be be successful it has to be all on me and so I'm getting growing and evolving and getting out of that mindset and that mentality um all right let me see if there's anything else I need to say yeah, and so 2020, 2021, again, where most of you all encountered me. Also, kudos, many, many thanks to the folks who have been here for multiple years at this point. You all are particularly special. Every, All of you are special, but the ones who have stuck around for multiple years, that really means a lot to me. So I want to show my gratitude. And for newer folks who um, have met me more recently, um, part of this this week is to humanize myself really and to kind of help you see that I um like yesterday I was on a live with the Lily and she's like oh you're the you're the goat in this space about colorism and one I don't know if I can claim that I think there are a lot of people who would disagree which is what I'm about to talk about is um some of the struggles really that come with that um but also you know it's not about everyone having to talk about colorism in the same way or everyone having to work on colorism in the same way. So I acknowledge that my approach to it is very much unique and tied to what my trajectory has been up until this point. Um, And so in terms of the who, the what, and the why, who I am plays a huge factor in how I decided to talk about colorism, but also when I started talking about it. Let's be honest, if I just started talking about colorism in 2020 or 2021, my trajectory would have been very different because the landscape was different. The cultural landscape was different. When I started in 2011, again, DEI, phrases like DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion were not hot topics. They were not trending hashtags. Um, You know, the Black Lives Matter movement had not started yet. Um, And so... Yeah, it was just a very different genesis than some of the the newer platforms and the newer conversations that are starting around colorism. But many of you know that lots of people can talk about colorism, but your positionality, who you are, determines how people receive it. And so as a dark-skinned African-American woman who's also cisgendered, heterosexual, tall, thin, able-bodied. And I'm trying to find a different word other than able-bodied because all bodies have abilities. Um, but the, the three that I see making the biggest impact are being a woman, being dark-skinned, and being African-American. And so having to overcome those biases when I'm talking to people, for example... People assume because I am a dark-skinned African-American woman talking about colorism that I have not done any research. They just make that assumption. 
I think really people think they can catch me or corner me or like psych me out because they think I have come to the conversation unprepared. This is partly based in perceptions about like laziness or just overall credibility. And so I find myself in having these conversations that my credibility is often under question or people suspect that I'm not as credible. Um, and then even, you know, because people also perceive that women are less intelligent, they perceive that black people are less intelligent, and they perceive that dark-skinned people are less intelligent. So to be all three of those things, like people really have a hard time <laughs> believing or trusting that you know what you're talking about, right? Um, and then I think too, people are have assumed and continue to assume that I'm less analytical, that I'm less scholarly and that, I, and that my conversations are based in just personal experience, like personal experience alone. Whereas they don't assume that for light-skinned people. They don't assume that a light-skinned person is only talking about their emotional experience. And so I'm perceived as being less objective, right? Or having, um, not being as insightful as lighter skinned people. And even again, having an agenda or, be, or wanting to, um, as a dark skinned person, you're just trying to compensate for your personal story. But why don't, why aren't light skinned people who talk about their experiences and talk about colorism, regardless of how well they do it or not, <laughs> they're not accused of or seen as only talking about personal experiences, right? They, they are just, their, their points that they make are just automatically seen as valid, um, particularly to colorist people or to people who have not examined their own colorism. Um, and then one thing that I experience, am experiencing more now, I guess now that my work has increased in its reach, is that people assume that my perspective is limited to just the African-American context. Um, and so that my experience is the African-American, but my work is global, right? My research is global, my conversations are global. But I think that assumption again is because I am a dark-skinned African-American woman. I think if I were a man, people would, people would find it easier to assume that my work was global, or if I were light-skinned, or if I was from, I don't know, Brazil. <laughs> people might have an easier time believing that my work was indeed global, that I have indeed studied colorism in various places. And not that I'm more of an expert about colorism in India than someone who lives in India and is Indian, but I still am able to speak to a global context. But the assumption is that I have a very limited perspective. Um, another one is the assumption that I don't love myself and that I have low self-esteem. And when you, when you hear light-skinned people, for example, talk about being bullied, right? And when light-skinned people say, oh, well, you know, the dark-skinned girls thought I was, said I thought I was all that or whatever. When people hear their, those stories, they blame the dark-skinned women and they accuse the dark-skinned women of being insecure or um, jealous or bitter. But if it's the light-skinned person complaining about that experience, wouldn't you also wonder if they're insecure or jealous or bitter, right? And so even in conversations about colorism, people reveal their colorism. And 
even, you know, so recently I was on a panel um, where this dark-skinned black man was kind of co-signing everything that the light-skinned panelist was saying and kind of ignoring or not acknowledging what I was saying, right? And so, yeah, I'm being honest in how, like, the stuff that I have to process and the amount of emotional labor that we're doing when we choose to talk about colorism, especially when we do it on a consistent or regular basis. So even in that space where the conversation was about colorism and what we can do about it, there were people actively perpetuating colorism against me. And I was the only dark-skinned woman, right? So there was, I was a dark-skinned woman, there was a dark-skinned man, and then the other panelists um, were lighter-skinned. And so to see a black man sort of intentionally, and you can, I could tell it was purposeful and intentional, intentional, intentionally ignoring or overlooking all of my comments, but yet following up to everything the light-skinned woman said and saying, oh yes, you know, like your point and this was valid and thank you for this and all that, right? And that's exhausting, but that's part of the work. And I'm not saying that to, you know, have a pity party or whatever, but I, again, I want people to know what the work actually entails. It's not just pretty Instagram graphics. It's not just cute selfies, because my selfies be cute now, and I do enjoy posting them, but there's so much we don't see when folks are posting and sharing online. There's so much of the emotional labor that we don't see. Although I will say so many of my followers reach out to me one-on-one -on -one and acknowledge the work. And so those messages and notes really do um, encourage me and help to refill my cup, right? The fact that there are people who know. There are other folks who do their own version of this, whether it's about colorism or something else. And so they get it, right? Like they can see how my experience is probably analogous to theirs because they also are putting forth a lot of emotional labor both online and oftentimes offline in various spaces right um, and so that community is really important for all of us it's been important for me but for everyone who seeks to speak out and be public advocates it's so helpful when you have people around you who can acknowledge and recognize what the labor actually is um how am I doing on time? 2.34. <laughs> I'm talking a lot in this one. Okay. Um, let's see if there are any comments. <laughs> Kindly Social says, I love everything about this talk. Thank you. Y'all, I was really worried because I was like, this is not the sort of, it's not as juicy as like last week was. And so I was like, uh, but I, I felt called to do it. And one of my mantras for 2021 is to follow all hunches and pull no punches. So it's like something on my spirit is telling me to tell my story. Something in my spirit is saying, you know, you need to be a little transparent and like let people know where you're coming from and where you've been and how you got here, you know? So it's like, I mean, I'm gonna do it and that's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Even though it's a little uncomfortable, you know, I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> um, yay. You're just looking at the hearts. Thank y'all. Um, thank you, Amanda, Liz Taylor, for buying a badge. Um, Belly Bayla says something is going on where I can't hear. I will watch replay. Okay. Hopefully everyone else can hear. Because y'all know what happened that one time during Mercury Retrograde when my sound cut out. 
Um, Black Knight 06 26.2 says, thank you for your courage and vulnerability. It is inspiring. Continue pressing forward. Thank you so much. And I can only do it because y'all are here. Seriously. Um, it's Mayam Isikir. Uh, of course, your work is global, Dr. Webb. I'm always watching your videos because colorism is so prevalent in Ethiopia, where I'm from. I'm so happy to catch you live. See, thank you for that. Um, and I, I always, you know, struggle with screen names, partly because they don't have spaces. And so it's hard to tell where words end and begin. Um, but thank you for that comment, right? And Ethiopia, I have definitely heard and seen testimonials from that space as well. And so I might not ever get to go to these places. And so the fact that people from around the world are watching me and they could have conversations in their countries and in their local communities, that's also part of what I want to do, um, is I, if I could like clone myself or multiply myself, right? And so I'm kind of doing that in an intellectual sense, um, and, and in, in equipping people and encouraging people and inspiring people to do what I'm doing, but in their own space and in their own way, right? Because there's no way I can be everywhere. There's no way I can reach everyone, right? So, you know, maybe there is um, a particular uh, pathway or a particular lane for you, right, in Ethiopia or for someone else in Brazil or for someone else in South Africa. Um, and my hope is that we can support each other. Disrupting Norms says, did you decide not to address the black man on the panel? Oh, Disrupting Norms, thank you for this question. So um, I, I, I started recognizing it on the panel. I didn't address him specifically for a couple of reasons. One, there's this thing that happens like when you're experiencing a microaggression, although I know the word micro is not accurate because it's aggression regardless. When you're experiencing something like that, sometimes it takes a while to process what is happening. And so unfortunately, um, I didn't get the full picture until like once the panel had kind of subsided. And it was really after the panel when we were just like talking amongst ourselves. So we weren't, there was no audience. It was just like the panelists and stuff and the organizers. And he kind of did the same thing again. And that's really when it hit home for me. And I was like, okay, yeah, it's definitely what I think it is. Um, but the other reason why I didn't address it or why sometimes I choose not to call people out when it's happening is because one Hmm, now that I'm thinking about this, I'm seeing other op I'm seeing other alternatives to what I'm about to say. <laughs> Is one, I don't want to add the additional burden of proof that I already have, right? And so I I have to weigh for myself like how much effort would it take to explain why this is wrong, why this is colorism versus um, using that time and using that energy to respond in other ways to the topic at hand. And so there's this constant negotiation that's happening, right? Where I'm already um, a little suspect because I'm the darker skinned black woman on the panel, the darker skinned African-American woman on this international panel. And I'm already having to navigate and negotiate people's perceptions of my credibility, right? And so I figured 
I could still get out a lot of value in this short amount of time by responding to other prompts, other questions. Um, but yes, and I think given the, the amount of time as well as the amount of time it took me to see it clearly <laughs> that it wasn't, that was a battle that I wasn't going to win, right? Like that battle would not have been efficient for my, the use of my energy and my explanatory powers. <laughs> but I often wish I could, I wish I could, um, and I'm, I'm going to continue to think about the best way to do it. Because again, if I were to say something like that, if I were to call somebody out on the panel, I'm going to be judged as being um, aggressive or like attacking somebody, right? And so that's something that I'll have to re self-reflect on and, and prepare myself to do in various moments in the future. But it's so contextual, like these things are so contextual, right? Again, like, am I the only dark-skinned person on the panel that can make a difference? Am I the only person who is actually saying things about colorism that are useful and productive? And I, I say that with the best of intentions, but um, I think this dark-skinned guy was an example of how even when there are other dark-skinned people on a panel, they might not be helping. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the relative safety. So for other dark-skinned Black women, we try to speak out when we can, but again, gauge for yourself how safe it is in that moment. Gauge for yourself um, the relative damage to your rep reputation or your perceived credibility. Engage whether or not the, the limited time you have to speak in those situations would be better used to explain a different point or to um, teach a different kind of lesson. So it's a lot to navigate and negotiate. Um, Lucid Lowe says, yes, I love your mantra. Yeah, I love, I'm thinking of one for 2022. So if you have any suggestions, let me know. Um, thank you, Sarah Castro. <laughs> um, thank you for all the work you do. It's inspired and instructed me to start conversations here. I watch your videos religiously. Yes, thank you. So that's exactly my hope. My hope is that other people will start conversations, that other people will do their work. What, however your work is meant to be done, that is my greatest hope. That is like the greatest um, legacy I could leave. And I plan to stay around for a long time. It's not like I'm like leaving a legacy for tomorrow, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's for someone to see me and be like, oh, I can do that too. Oh, there's something I want to say. Right. And that's also part of the contest and all that stuff. So, I mean, you just, that's affirming. That's really affirming that the, the good work is continuing and spreading. Um, I also mentioned in one of my posts that um, so one, I can't reach everyone. So we need as many people talking about colorism as possible, but two, the, the months, the years, the days when I need to take a break, the years or the months or the days when I need to step away, when I'm sick or when I'm just not feeling it, or when I just want to go hike in the mountains with no Wi-Fi, like it's comforting to know that the work is still going on, that the work continues independent of me as an individual, right? Um, and so that's why I think 
our collective effort is so important because there will always be times when you, for example, might need to take a hiatus where you um, need to focus your attention on something else. And so you can trust that the work of colorism, healing, of ending colorism, of protecting, you know, dark skinned black girls uh, is still happening. It's still happening. And so that's, I think, really comforting to know. Um, yeah, have a work Zoom we'll catch on IGTV. Thank you for tuning in while you could. Thanks for um, participating. Uh, it's Maya Masakir. Okay, <laughs> good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. All right. And so I'll say a couple of other things. Um, Black Night 06 26.2 says, yesterday I had a conversation with an Indian from India explaining colorism. Thanks, Dr. Webb. Yes, see, global cross-cultural conversations. <laughs> um, disrupting norms is interesting to think of that delayed understanding in the face of aggression. Yeah, especially when, because that's like the magic power of a microaggression. And I think when we say microaggression, it's not that it's, less severe than an explicit aggression, but the power of it is that there's this plausible deniability, that there is a delayed um, understanding of what it is, especially if, you know, I'm in that context, in that setting, my mind is like really focused. Like I have like almost tunnel vision when I'm on a panel or when I'm giving a presentation because I'm there for a specific purpose. I'm delivering a message. And so like your mind literally will eliminate certain pieces of data. And I, I, I like neuropsychology, but I'm not a neuro, neuroscientist. But our brain can literally only process so much information at once, right? Our brains as humans can only process so much data at once. And so we're getting billions of data points and our brain like shuts out most of it. And so I think that's part of what happens is once I didn't have to be performing, right? Because being on that in that space, I had to be ready. I had to be alert. I had to be on, as they say. And so once I was able to kind of settle down and relax, my brain could then had the capacity, had the space to say, oh, this other information that you picked up on, now we can process what that actually was. But I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> um, hey, it's Hope says your hair is beautiful. Thank you. I'm actually going to wash it tonight. It's been over two weeks since I've washed it. So I'm well overdue. Hello, Natasha. Um, disrupting Norm says, I feel like Lucid Lose is a co-host. She's so present in these lives or recordings. I know. I know. Me and Lucid Lose have been talking about coming on and having, you know, an actual like co-host situation and having an actual conversation. But, you know, when the time is right, when the time is right. <laughs> Now I'm just pretty sad. You just continue to inspire me to get out of my own way. Bam. There you go. There you go. And it's crazy. Um, Lavanda, AKA now I'm just pretty because you are doing phenomenal work. Right. And so when you think about it like that, it's like, if you are still in your own way, like, man, just imagine how powerful and explosive you will be when you are fully out of your own way, right? Because you have been knocking down doors, you have been blazing trails and really doing your thing. And so 
watch out now. Y'all better watch out because she ain't even got started yet. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm running low on time. So I'll say a few more things that I, I think are important. Um, the last thing I'll say, and literally I wrote in my blog post, I wrote the last thing I'll say, <laughs> I said, the last thing I'll say about how I show up, um, is I put myself out there. Okay. I put myself out there online. If I was scrolling through my Instagram to see, you know, what the very first post was that I posted. And I said, I have, especially like in the recent past two or three years, I have a lot of images of myself when I started doing my weekly lives, because when I save them, it saves like a, a, a still photo of what the live is. And my name has always been attached to my work. Always. My image, my face has always been attached to my work. Even in 2011, when I just first started blogging, it was always, you always knew that this was um, not some anonymous um, pseudonym or like this was a real person. This was Sarah Webb. Um, and that's important to me. One, because I want little dark-skinned girls. I want dark-skinned women and I want the whole world. I want people of every race and ethnicity to see me. <laughs> I mentioned this when um, Rachel Krug and Rachel Dolezal, when all that stuff happened, I said, people would much rather learn about colorism from light-skinned people, from racially ambiguous people, or from white-passing, white-assumed people. And seeing me talk about colorism actually makes you put give legs to your claims that you don't see um, dark-skinned people as inferior, that you don't see dark-skinned people as less than, right? And so if you're looking at me talk about this stuff, you're coming face-to-face -face with your internal biases in ways that you don't if you're looking at a white person or a light-skinned person. And so I think that is part of the work. Part of my work, and again, this is not the case for everyone, there are so many platforms out there that do it very, very different than me, and they are bomb. They are fire, brilliant, beautiful platforms, okay? But the way I do it is seeing me is part of the work. Like looking at my face, looking at my hair, looking at my nose, consuming that, taking that in, um, saying, oh, I'm learning this, not just from some invisible force, but I'm learning this from a dark-skinned black woman with a wide nose and a tight curl pattern. That's who I'm listening to. That's who I'm giving my attention to right now. That's who I am learning from in this instance. That's who I am seeing as the expert. That's who I'm seeing as the credible spokesperson. That part is important. But um, for my dark-skinned people in particular, for my dark-skinned women and dark-skinned girls, this is really important. I want young dark-skinned women to see me being unafraid to be seen. I want young dark-skinned women to see me being unafraid to be seen. And in some ways, I think that alone will be part of my legacy. Even if people don't ever hear my words, even if they don't ever see the research or listen to my arguments or look at the studies that I do or read my articles or read my blog posts, 
the fact that there's a some a little dark skinned girl with a who looks like me has my hair texture, my nose, my eye color can experience, can witness someone who looks like that be, being unafraid to be seen is I think pretty powerful. Um, and so I know I kind of spoke to that somewhat or earlier when I posted a selfie of myself, but it's not petty. It's not trivial to say, you know, cause I, I hear dark skinned people talking about how they are still afraid to post selfies. And obviously like a lot of people are insecure about posting selfies for whatever reason, whether it's like their body type or, you know, acne scars or, you know, um, but in terms of the realm of colorism, I have talked to this about clients with clients as well too, is that oftentimes when we do see images of beautiful dark skinned women, they are classically beautiful in other ways that I am not. They are classically beautiful in that they have their baby hairs laid down. They're dark skinned, but they have flawless makeup coverage. They're dark skinned, but they have like flawless, unblemished skin, right? Whereas, you know, my skin is, I'm experiencing hypopigmentation because of my dermatitis. Um, they might be beautiful and dark skinned, but uh, they are oiled down and have like glitter all over them, right? And so there, there are so many, so many ways that you can make a difference. Um, and that's, you know, I think an important one for me as well. <laughs> um, it's not just that, you know, oh yeah, these are images of like beautiful dark-skinned women, but an image of a beautiful dark-skinned woman who's not trying or who's not um, who's natural, like to be natural and dark skin and beautiful is a thing, right? And I'm not discounting wearing makeup. You know, this is not about, uh, oh, you shouldn't wear makeup or you shouldn't be dolled up or wearing, you know, designer clothes. Um, but I do think there's a message, there's a narrative that if you're dark skin, you have to do that in order to be seen as beautiful. And so, yeah, I'm intentionally showing my like non-makeup face. Not, and I'm extremely casual today. That was not done on purpose. <laughs> I'm very casual today because I ran out of time writing this blog post to get ready for y'all. So I was like, well, now we're talking about being vulnerable. Let's do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you all for listening to that, for listening to me any, whenever you do, whether this week, last week, being here, being in any way connected, being in any way available for this conversation. Like I, I say it every week, but it just blows my mind that y'all care that y'all are here. I'm like, really, I'm not being self-deprecating, but really y'all have to think about this. Like I grew up, like my grandparents were sharecroppers, seasonal sharecroppers. They worked on the railroad. My grandmother was a domestic worker. They didn't have high school education. Um, I don't even think they had any literacy skills and like my people are just really, really regular, right? Like I would not have ever imagined like to this day, I would have never imagined if you told me when I was growing up in Kenna, Louisiana, listening to Al Green on the 45, that people in the UK and Ethiopia and India and South Africa and Brazil would listen to what I had to say about something. 
I'm like, what? <laughs> so just grateful and humble. And I do not take it for granted. And so I want to be a good steward of your time and a good steward of your intentions, um, of your attention, I should say. Um, yeah, naturally, unapologetically, you, yeah. Sometimes I throw on some lipstick, you know, because I like color. I am <laughs> um, a minimalist, LOL. That's the style. Okay, so minimalists, definitely. Yeah, low maintenance minimalists. <laughs> Yes. All right, y'all. Take care. Thank you again to everyone who purchased badges. Um, Amanda, Liz Taylor, RxCYJL, Kindly Social, Black Love Project, Lucid Lose, JB 1710, and Jandell Crutch. And thank you to everyone who tuned in and participated live. Thank you for all of you who are watching or listening to the recording, whether it's on YouTube, IGTV, the podcast, etc. I'll be back next week with a special guest that I met on TikTok. TikTok this brilliant, young, beautiful, dark-skinned sister who um, I'm excited. I think she'll bring a lot of heat, a lot of fire to the conversation. Um, so hopefully she'll be able to, she'll still able to, to join me next week. Um, yeah, and there's no set topic. We're just gonna, I'm just gonna pick her brain and, and see what some of her insights and opinions are on colorism. All right. Um, Disrupting Norm says you have the resilience of your ancestry. Hey, I like that. Yes. <laughs> Oh, and I'm supposed to be, I'm in the Dallas area for a while. So if any of you are in the DFW area and want to get lunch or coffee sometime, let me know, okay? I saw one person, one of my followers is in Dallas. And so we are supposed to be meeting up this weekend for lunch or something. And so, yeah, let me know if you're local and we can meet up in person. And I'll let you know where else in the world I am in the future so that I can see all of you at, in person at some point. <laughs> all right, I gotta go. Um, yay. Okay. Mwah. Bye. <laughs>thanks again for listening. Please remember to hit the like button and share this episode with a friend. I hope you can join us again for the next one.